0: I'm Katherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Katherine Zox Show. Joining me today is assistant professor of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at NYU Langone Fertility Center, Dr. Shannon DeVore. And our topic today is going to be frozen embryos. Molly Everett Gibson, a baby conceived via IVF and frozen as an embryo 27 years ago, was just born a few weeks ago to Tina Gibson, who's only 28 years old. Tina and her husband, Benjamin, 36, who has cystic fibrosis, which can cause infertility, decided to adopt Molly after trying naturally for their own child for five years. What people are now asking is, what is the shelf life of a frozen Mm -hmm. embryo, and are they safe to use after such a long period of time? Dr. Shannon DeVore shares with us the science behind egg and embryo freezing and how this technology has advanced in the last several decades. Dr. DeVore, who is board certified in both reproductive endocrinology and infertility and obstetrics and gynecology, is a member of the renowned NYU Fertility Center team in New York City. Welcome to the show, Doctor. Nice to have you on today. Thank you so much. Well, I mean, it's a this is a, a cutting-edge topic, obviously. It's really interesting. It was very interesting to me and obviously to my listeners. But so we're talking about an embryo that's 27 years old. I mean, how old, is this the oldest embryo that has been used in, in, or, or are there? Well, yeah, that's my first, definitely. Yeah, it is. Um, yeah, it's a little
1: mind-boggling when you think about that the, the mom was like nine months old when the
0: embryo was made. Um, you know, kind of makes you think for a while. It makes you think, uh, to me, just as a layperson, it's like these are, I think about old eggs and old embryos. I mean, how, I mean, I know, but, you know, I I have a friend who is in in the agribusiness and I guess they've been doing this with with animals for a long, long time, right? I mean, other than humans. Yeah. So. Yeah,
1: obviously a human's more complex. So, um, you know, it, it remains to be seen how, you know, all of this will be factored through. But it's pretty impressive
0: that, you know, this worked. So a 27-year-old embryo, where, do, where is it? In, in uh, Where do they keep it? Uh, who houses them? How does that work? So How does the is, whole process yeah, this work? Was a, yeah, this was a unique
1: program um, that offers embryo adoption. So most clinics house embryos that are created by patients. Um, and would not hold on to an embryo for 27 years. So, you know, patients pay storage fees and each year kind of come up with their disposition plan. So, somebody who froze an embryo 27 years ago would have presumably either discarded it, donated it to research, or donated it to one of these centers for um, adoption. So, the clinics themselves typically don't coordinate the adoption process, so it's it's outside centers. So this is a unique center that received this embryo and held on to it um, versus there are not just embryos that are kind of sitting for 30 years in in our clinic.
0: These embryos, and you're talking about store fees, how much does it cost to store the embryos?
1: Yeah, so it depends on, you know, it can vary anyway, anywhere from 750 to Probably twelve hundred a year annual storage fee, um, and so it depends on the clinic where they are stored. Some clinics do offsite storage and are able to decrease the cost that way. And so the embryos or eggs are sent to an offsite center that just does storage. Um, we store ours on site in the embryology lab.
0: I guess my next question is how many of these are there around the country? How many places where you can store embryos? I mean, are they in each state? I mean, you're at a big medical center, obviously, but what about the rest of the country?
1: So most clinics still store on site. Um, So at at their respective clinics, they have an embryology lab and, you know, tanks that they are able to store at. Um, It's become, you know, more recent that they've, kind of outsourced it to storage facilities. I'm not sure offhand how many there are in the country, um, but it's not something, I mean, because of the annual fees, patients typically make decisions on these embryos or eggs. It's not like they're sitting there for, you know, 50 years or something like that. Um, So, you know, I don't think it's, I think this is a pretty unique situation. I don't think that there are many embryos that are 27 years old that are still out there and, you know, thinking about being used
0: but well, when you're talking about a 27 year old embryo how do you know that it is healthy or that it's been stored correctly i mean do some of these places have better reputations than others and and let's say you get a 27 year old embryo do you, do, you, do you test for how healthy it is I
1: yeah I, well i think it's so crazy that she didn't know from what i read you know she she selected based on i think it was height um, you know, their first child, and they didn't know how old the embryo was until, you know, transfer time, Um, which to me is kind of crazy. But, yeah, I mean, typically, so the older form of freezing embryos in, well, you know, initially we really didn't even freeze eggs 27 years ago, but the older technology is slow freezing um, whereby it's a very slow process of cooling the embryo um, and it's more form, more prone to crystal formation. So the embryos don't do quite as well, you know, that in the advent of vitrification, which essentially is a quick rapid cooling and it prevents um, crystal formation in the freeze process. Um, the outcomes are better. And so you know, I, I guess you don't really know that a storage facility has, like, properly stored the embryo, but I think that would – typically, it's kind of an all-or-nothing thing. So, if the embryo doesn't survive the thaw and, you know, doesn't lead to a healthy embryo for transfer, it's not going to implant. So, it's it's typically not that the baby has some malformation or something because of the length of this cryopreservation or if it was done properly, um, it's more like, is it going to work or not? And so, when we moved from slow freezing to vitrification, they had there was better outcomes in terms of pregnancy rate, you know, survival, surviving the thaw, all of those things.
0: So, in other words, if it's a healthy embryo, then it will take and be it's, a exactly. Suppose, yeah, if it wasn't yeah.
1: stored, if it wasn't stored well, it probably wouldn't survive.
0: All right, let's get into what is embryo adoption? What is that whole process? And I'm really interested also, not just in the medical, but the legalities of all of this. Yeah. yeah it's so that, crazy. Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, so, you know, we don't facilitate, so if a patient wants to donate their embryos, then we offer them, you know, the testing that they need to have done because it, they are essentially donors at that point. And so somebody else would be carrying their tissues. So there's special FDA um tests that are required, like infectious disease testing and things like that. So we offered that process to help, you know, facilitate them sending their embryos for, to an adoption center. Um but beyond that, you know, we kind of let them take it from there. Um so not a ton of our patients actually end up doing it. Um, you know, and, and a lot of it is it's it's hard to think about somebody raising your child, you know, especially if you have biological siblings. And so it's it's a big decision. Um And so, yeah, I mean, the legality of it is is truly adoption. They are donors. They are signing away their parental rights. Um, You know, it varies if there's an open or a closed system, just like regular adoption. So you would indicate if you're amenable to, you know, having a relationship with the child um, in the future and things like that.
0: So when they go through the, as you say, it's an adoption process, just like... Like, is any other embryo, yeah. an embryo? It's just a, a live baby, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there, do, do you have, are you in, involved with counseling and, and those kinds of things? I mean, is that supportive counseling? Yeah, or? so
1: anytime we have a patient who uses a donor egg or a donor sperm, we have them meet with our um, psychology team. And it's not, it's not to indicate, you know, it's, it's not a psych eval. It's just to go through issues of anonymity and disclosure and. Um, kind of our experience helping patients become parents of donor gametes, they're called. So, yes, if if I had a patient, and I did recently have one patient who was, it was, you know, one of the first times I had a patient who was interested in embryo adoption. And so, yes, psychology is definitely involved because there's lots of things to consider. A lot of the embryos that, you know, you would adopt have a full biological family out there, um, which is a little bit different than a donor sperm where, you know, that. Egg and sperm combination is unique, and there's like just your children have that combination.
0: Yeah, I have a friend actually who, uh, in college, I mean now he's quite old, but uh, <laughs> donated his sperm to make you know so that he could have some money to get through to go to graduate oh, school. Gosh. And, but now today, knowing you can test for DNA, you know, the whole yeah. picture has changed. It was very different then, you know, know, donating your sperm was an easy thing to do, obviously. And no and one knew where it went. Yeah. And that was the end of it, yeah. right? Right. So, yeah. It's, a, so it's anyway, complicated. So, yeah, it is And, and there's
1: important yeah. for raising children in today's day and age where they will definitely find out. Um, you know, you have, there's lots of things to discuss.
0: What about... Do you have people? Let's say you're. I'm just trying to think of some like legalities, some sort of a scenario. I mean, you have somebody who wants to donate the embryos, but their embryo, but um, there are other family members who don't want them to do it. And do they have as any kind of legal rights? Does it, you know, that kind of stuff? Grandparents? Um, I don't know. Yeah.
1: No, not the grandparents. That's interesting, though. I never even thought about that. It would just be the, you know, the the parents of the embryo. So, it, even if it's created through donor sperm, you know, if there's a, a couple, you know, that has been partnered and they are the owners of the embryo, then they would
0: both have to sign off. So, and it wouldn't be related it, to the grandparents. So it's just the couple, though, you know, okay, so they it's make that kind of a decision, right. So, mm-hmm. this is a tr-
1: so this is both a- have to sign off.
0: They both do, yeah.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if you're, you know, want to donate your embryos because you got a divorce, then there can be differing opinions on that. Um, and both both would have to sign off on the
0: disposition of the embryo. Yeah,
1: embryos. that was my
0: next question. What if all of a sudden mm-hmm. in this whole process, they go through a divorce? Yeah. And they're fighting over the embryo. So,
1: yeah yeah, so before we have embryo creation at our lab, we have patient signed consents that, in the event of death or divorce, what is the disposition of the embryos? Um, so there's like an upfront consent that can be changed. Um, so you know they can always change their minds, but they both have to agree. So if it got to the point of a legal battle, like they would have the pre-existing consent with their initial, you know, agreement. And they have to be in agreement. We can't, like, we wouldn't create the embryos unless they were in agreement.
0: What about the future? Is this the future of adoption? <laughs> is this, is this, I mean, is this a trend, I guess, is what I'm asking you, is something that will become much more prevalent?
1: It could be. You know, I think that a lot of, you know, sometimes I think about the roads that my patients go through to get pregnant and just the journey and how difficult it is. And and sometimes when I share that with, you know, friends or family, say, well, why don't they just adopt? And I say, adoption is really hard and it's really expensive. And particularly for um, single parents, it's very difficult if you want to adopt a baby, um, which most people do. And so, you know, yes, of course, why don't you adopt is an easy answer to, to you know, think about when it's not you, but like, realistically, it's, it takes longer, it's more expensive, it's, it's more heartbreaking, because there's so many disappointments that occur. Um, and so, you know, this is a form of, there are a lot of embryos that are available that couples have decided to donate. Um, and I, I would say, because I don't have as much experience with it, um, versus using donor egg or donor sperm, which is, is very normal to me and part of my routine practice. Um, you know, when I did review a profile for one of my patients earlier this year, the donor embryo, it did catch me off guard a little bit because this donor had, or this embryo had three biological siblings and a full family, you know, out in California. Um, and that seemed a little like, different than, you know, things that we, we typically do with donor egg and donor sperm. But, you know, that is like regular adoption. Like there can be a full
0: family of, uh, You know, what about there. yeah? I was gonna yeah. There can in either case is what you're saying. So, like, just to be very clear, like, somebody wants to um, donate their embryo, and somebody wants to adopt, and they were to come to the to NYU. What would be the first thing they would have to do? Do this? do they need so, you know in terms? Yeah, yeah. So we don't do donor
1: embryo. So the the profile I was reviewing for my patient, she would have gone like through the clinic in California that had the embryo. Um, So we just are not in like in terms of capacity and volume and like it's super specific, the the process. So we are not a center that um, facilitates embryo adoption. Um, You know, if our patients want to donate their embryos, they can go through another center and we can kind of ship the embryos. Um, but we're not like an active part of that. Um, so they would find one of these clinics that, you know, and they, they might do the initial workup through us, um, but they would find a clinic that specializes in embryo adoption. And so, you know, like the one that um, Molly was born from, um, they would go through them and, you know, select just the way, same way that they select a donor egg or a donor sperm. You, you kind of narrow it down, you have to narrow it down by some sort of semblance. Um, You know, some people have no preferences in terms of looks and background and things like that. But a lot of times they want them to match the, you know, how they look. For example, they chose by height. I guess it would be a little strange if they had like a six foot child and they were five foot two, but Um, you know, you have to just kind of have some criteria. So they typically filter by that. And then I I think the biggest important, you know, like the the most important factor that I counsel patients with donor egg and donor sperm is, you know, what, what kind of level of disclosure is there? Um, Children do best when there's kind of an open process with adoption. Um, And so that there is the ability to reach out to a, you know, a biological donor, um, I guess, in the future. So if it's totally closed, that might be a factor too. And that's where psychology comes in.
0: And so if it's open, when you're talking about an open adoption, does that mean at 18 or is there a certain age limit or how does that work?
1: Um, You know, I'm I'm not sure. I think that it's typically at 18, but I'm not super familiar with that. Um, It's the same as with as with regular adoption. So I'm not sure what the,
0: the typical timeframe is on that, if it's unlocked at 18. So Dr. DeVore, how did you get into this field? <laughs>
1: uh, that's a great question.
0: I actually always wanted to be an
1: OBGYN um, from when I was, I don't know, in high school or something. So it wasn't that I really wanted to be a doctor. I really wanted to be an OBGYN. I've always been drawn to women's healthcare and women's issues. Um, and then it was actually my first year of med school, which is very strange, um, because, you know, you don't have any clinical exposure in your first year of medical school. And I was at UC Irvine in California, um, and we did not have a fertility program at UC Irvine. So typically you kind of get involved in research your first year of medical school and like show some interest in something. Um, and so I really was fascinated by, um, infertility and just the ability of like bench to bedside, meaning, how quickly the science is evolving and how quickly it can be applied to clinical practice. Um, So I love that about the field. It's, you know, just even how much things have changed since I've been in practice. But anyway, so we didn't have a um, fertility center because there was a a large scandal at UC Irvine in the nineties and they just closed down the program entirely. So I actually emailed um, one of the doctors at NYU and asked if I could spend the summer doing research with them and they agreed. And so know, it's kind of come full circle that I came, that I did that at age 23 and now I'm back at, at NYU as an attending physician. So, you know, that really blossomed my, my interest. I think just the depth and breadth of the patients that we see, you know, there are very, I think I'm equal parts counselor as um, doctor and I, I, that's the most
0: important thing to me is just the
1: relationship I have with patients and, you know, it's really a special, unique thing.
0: It is a unique thing. And I'm thinking, I mean, you have this relationship with them. Do they come back to you later? I mean, with, do you see the babies? Like about
1: 10 weeks. Yeah. 10 weeks pregnant, they go to their OB um, for, you know, the management of the pregnancy and the delivery. I don't deliver babies anymore, Um, but they all come back, you know, to show me pictures and, or for number two or, you know, and I feel like they, we have such a special connection and we see them so frequently. Like it's, it's an intensive process. And when they go to their OB, the OBs see them, you know, once a month or so, at least in the beginning and they're it's always shell shock. So they, I find that they still come back to me for questions like, you know, should I do this sort of test? My OB, discuss it with me. What do you think? Um, so I'm kind of there as a consultant throughout the pregnancy,
0: but I don't actually deliver the babies. And what about families after they've delivered after they've adopted one embryo, um, do they tend to, do it a second time or is it usually literally a one-shot deal or how does that work? There, it depends. I, You know, I, I think there's just the whole, like the
1: fertility, you know, field, there's just the whole spectrum, like of different types of families and situations that I see. I have a lot of patients who, you know, have, One or two children already, and they opt to use a donor egg for their third, second or third. Um, My my patient who was considering embryo adoption um, had a child already, and this was for their second child. And so, you know, for them, their family would be complete after that. Um, For the Gibsons, you know, they're they didn't have children, and so to that's an ideal situation to have, you know, the biological um, sibling for their first child um, you know I think that there's it's just a really unique and amazing way to do that which isn't you can't really do with traditional adoption as easily so there's the whole the whole run of it you know I think if you were interested in having a sibling you might you can probably I'm, I'm not entirely sure but I imagine because this is how it works for donor eggs is you can probably purchase all the embryos that they have and then you success successively transfer.
0: Well, i was thinking about in the case of of uh, the gibsons uh, as I, I in the intro which i said you know fa- benjamin the father has cystic fibrosis so and that well that can cause infertility it also can can uh, the, i forgot oh, yeah. the, the kids can have cystic fibrosis or mm-hmm. be carriers or um so with it that obviously i guess you know that doesn't happen if you adopt an embryo right
1: um, yeah exactly Um, but there's, you know, 27 years ago, they couldn't, I'm sure those parents aren't available for tests. Now we do 200, we screen patients for 281 genetic diseases, which cystic fibrosis would be picked up on. But I don't know that that's available for donors long gone, you know, because we didn't have that technology back then. So there could be other genetic issues that they just don't know about, which is interesting. Um, but you know, more recently donated embryos, those, those parents would have been screened for the genetic diseases.
0: Yeah. So, and I'm assuming that they screen the parents just as they would for adopting a a live child uh, in in terms of... Mm -hmm. Yeah, because
1: it's going to be carried in, you know, another woman's uterus. So, there's all that screening that has to go through.
0: Uh, it's such a fascinating field. What do you say to people who are, you know, people say oh, that, that this is, you know, this is too futuristic. This is something that we shouldn't be doing. You're fooling with nature. I mean, I'm sure you get those kinds of questions. And what's the response to that?
1: I just think that there are so many different ways to create a family and to have a family. Um, and, you know, this has been going on for a long time. And I think just the longer you hear about something the more normal it becomes and just because something feels scary and futuristic now does not mean that that is how it will always be perceived Um, you know and so I just I tell patients a lot of patients are really hesitant to use a donor egg or um, you know it's just not how they envision their their family and and love is love is kind of what I tell them you know at no point are you going to wake up and be like this this child isn't genetically mine like I don't love it you're going to like the the biggest part about becoming a parent is the love and protection you give your child. And that's why they see you as mommy and daddy. Not, not that there's like the common malady of blue eyes.
0: Yeah. Uh, that was, you know, just from my perspective, social work perspective, I was, uh, I was going to ask you this next, I am going to ask you the next question. <laughs> Do you ever get, you know, I mean, women need, have their own biological babies and they go through postpartum depression. And that, can happen. Um, do you see more of that? Or, or is it or the same? Let's say if you um, had an I embryo. I would
1: say, yeah, that's a good question. I think it would, it's probably the same, if not slightly less. Um, you know, I, I think it's, it's probably pretty equal. You know, I think more than I think that a, a lot of women, this is the culmination of so many years of wanting something. And so there's, there's that element of like, they are incredibly grateful to have a child, but there is the other slope of that where, which is like, you know, the letdown of any, just the feeling of being overwhelmed that any woman can feel in the postpartum period and like kind of the, the buildup and like, I don't want to say disappointment, but just like feelings of sorrow, um, I think, you know, can happen to any woman. I would say it's, it's pretty similar um, study show.
0: Yeah. I'm like a
1: a vulnerable group, I would say.
0: Yeah. I I mean, that would, it seemed to me that that would be the case. I mean, that's just anecdotal on my part. But uh, the fact that you've tried so hard and you've been through so much and then finally you have a baby, which some people, you know.
1: Everything should be happy and and exciting, and sometimes it's just not.
0: Yeah. Well, those hormones go plummeting. Oh, God. (laughs) I know. Yeah. I know how that feels. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, we only have a couple minutes left, so I know that there's so many more questions I could have asked you, and there's so much more information, so give us um, some web, a website or websites that we can go to for more information about your work, what you're doing with, at, you know, at NYU, and also just other resources, I would say, that about this topic and um, frozen embryos. Yeah,
1: um, so our website is fertilityny.org. Um, so there's a lot of information on that site, you know, in terms of the procedures and the processes and how everything works. Um, other good sources are resolved, particularly for adoption. Um, you know, that's an infertility kind of um, I don't want to say network, but, you know, advocacy group. Um, And then Fertility IQ is actually great. That's one of the – it's the startup by um, two patients who underwent infertility treatment, and they've made some really good, well-studied layman's terms courses that you can understand each process very well um, with good scientific evidence backing it.
0: Yeah, well, I think that's what people are always interested in, fertility IQ, so that you can really understand the process, not too much medical jargon, but yeah, simple. But yeah. they
1: actually have learned, they're very smart people, and they've learned how to read studies, which is super important, because there's always, you know, like, patients come to me with studies all the time, and I'm like, no, no, that's not actually what that showed, I, you know, like, let me show you exactly what it's saying, um, because that's what I spend you know, day in, day out doing is reading studies. Um, so the individuals who started Fertility IQ have done a really nice job and can actually interpret it like the real information from the studies and, and present it in a patient friendly way.
0: Oh, that's great. Thank you so much for being on the show today. I of course. obviously learned, we've all learned a lot. Thank you, Dr. Shannon DeVore. It was a pleasure.